Hey everybody, it's Brock Falk, and I want to thank you for listening to this message from Heritage Church of Christ. We would be thrilled to share more content like this with you and make it easy for you to share it with others. You can find more messages like this on our podcast, or you can download our smartphone app by searching for Heritage Church of Christ in your app store. But most importantly, I hope this message encourages you to take a next step toward a thriving relationship with Jesus. Enjoy. This weekend, and I've run into a number of uh, dads who got the kids here and did all the thing, you know, this morning, um, and, and I just want to commend you for that, and thank you so much for going to that effort, uh, and thank you for making it possible uh, for your wives to be a part of that ministry that's happening and all of the growth and the connection that's going on for them. I want to tell you as we get started about something I've been doing this year just for my own spiritual growth. I've been participating in an audio version of reading through the Bible in a year. And it's actually a podcast that I'm subscribed to called Daily Audio Bible. And they have a couple of different options. And one of them is a chronological edition, which means that they're reading the text, not in the order that it appears in the table of contents, but best we can tell the order that scholars would say these events in biblical history actually happen. But lately, for the last couple of weeks, maybe even for a month or two, I've really been having to ask God to grant me extra endurance and patience for my Bible reading. Is it okay for a pastor to say that? You know, like I've been having to ask God to be with me and to help me to stay focused in those readings because for the last couple of weeks, I've been listening to this really obscure, confusing material from these prophetic Old Testament books like Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel. It's this section of the Bible that is challenging for anybody. It's a section where you've really got to focus to dig in and find the inspiration and the instructive sections that are buried in between all of these predictions of discipline and visions of doom and destruction for nations and people who were rebelling against God. There is all sorts of bad news in that section of the Bible, and I am really looking forward to October when I cross over into the New Testament portion of the chronological reading. But you know, throughout this year, this is not the first section of Scripture that I've come across that it's been hard to get excited about. If you've ever read the Old Testament through or attempted it, you can probably remember some of the census information and the seemingly endless genealogies that are buried in some of those ancient books. And if you're honest with yourself, as you read through some of those, you thought, I wonder why they went to such great length to record all of this information. And one of the more notorious features of the Old Testament that often gets people bogged down when they try to read through is this extensive collection of religious rules that you find in early Old Testament books like Leviticus and Deuteronomy. This Old Testament law, these passages address all sorts of unusual situations, and they address questions that might possibly come up, you know, once every hundred years or something like that, which makes it seem like God left no stone unturned when he was establishing his covenant with the ancient Israelites. And obeying those rules, obeying those laws required such focus, such obvious effort, such visible interest and attention that it was pretty easy to tell 
who was in and who was out. It was pretty easy to look and see if somebody was working the plan, doing the program, or not. Of course, that's one of the main, th main things that rules are good for, isn't it? Rules determine the boundaries. They determine the limits. Here we are, football season is in full swing, and whether you're somebody who spent your weekend watching Pop Warner football or high school football or NCAA football or you're planning on NFL football this afternoon, you know that in every one of those cases, it takes an entire team of officials, right? Sometimes seven or eight officials on the field at the same time to enforce all of the different rules of the game. But the rules and the referees are important. The whole thing rides on that because the rules and the referees at the end of every play, they determine who was in and who was out. They determine who was right and who was wrong. They determine who's making progress and who's falling behind. And we like it that way, don't we? We like it that way with football and with our other sports. We like the consistency that rules bring to the competition. And mostly, we really like it that the other team has to play by the rules too. That's our favorite part of rules, is that somebody else has to live by them. And naturally, this entire system is built on the agreement that people reach about the rules before the game ever starts, right? Like that's a crucial part of the whole deal. All of the teams and all of the officials have to be on the same page about the rules long before kickoff ever happens. You can imagine that there would be all sorts of drama happening if they were still trying to decide which rules to enforce and which rules to follow when they were in the middle of the game. Well, as you know, we're not here to talk today about the rules of football, but today we are talking about a parallel problem that sometimes crops up when religious people can't agree on the rules that govern spiritual community and the rules that govern spiritual practice. It's always been hard to separate religion from rules. That's always been a struggle, always been a tension. It seems like people naturally want to define the rules, the boundaries, the limits of faith for the very same reason that we like rules in sports. We like to know whether we're in or whether we're out. We like to know who else is in and who else is out. In fact, the entire history of Christianity right up to the very present day is riddled with story after story of believers in Jesus who disagreed about the minutia of the rules of faith and what those really should be. They were disagreeing about the really minor points about what God really wants. And when these people couldn't agree on the minutia of the rules, what did they do? Time after time after time, they just split up and decided to go their separate ways, right? Religion has been the source of entirely too much division. And it's all been about our interpretation and our disagreement about the rules. But it wasn't meant to be this way. 
We were meant to be a people who stick together on the spiritual journey, which is why we're in the middle of this series of messages here at Heritage right now called Together. We're talking about the reciprocal connection between our horizontal relationships, the relationships we share with each other, and our vertical relationship, the relationship we have with God. In other words, our connection to God and our connection to people, those connections are interdependent. We don't have one without the other. And so in today's study, we're talking about the rules. We're talking about what God expects. We're talking about the law of being a Christian, but what we're going to find is that it all comes back to the way that we interact with each other. If you've got a Bible with you this morning and you want to follow along on your own, we are going to spend some time together focused in the New Testament book of Galatians, specifically in the sixth chapter of that book. We're going to put these verses up on the screen so it's totally okay if you didn't bring a Bible of your own. You'll be able to read along up here anyway. But you need to know that the book of Galatians in the New Testament part of your Bible, this is, it's nothing but a personal letter. It was a letter that was written almost 2,000 years ago to a group of brand new Christians somewhere in the area that we know now as Western Turkey. And the guy who wrote this letter, his name was Paul, and he was a church leader who spent most of his later adult life traveling around Western Asia and Southern Europe and telling people about Jesus. And he spent time in this region called Galatia in Western Turkey, and, and a bunch of people heard his teaching, and they came to faith in Christ because of what he was teaching. But their, their conversion was not just a, a minor change for them. It was not just a matter of a few degrees of adjustment. This was a major excuse me, a major disruption to their worldview. You see, when the people in Galatia, before they met Paul, these people were pagans, which meant that they didn't worship one God who loved them and knew them and cared for them and had a relationship with them. They worshiped temperamental gods, gods from Greek mythology like Zeus, the god of the sky, and Hermes, the god of trade. They worshiped gods that they were, they were afraid of, gods that they feared, gods who historically seemed like they had short tempers, who had to be appeased and placated or else they might get mad and dole out severe consequences. And then Paul comes along and Paul starts telling them about a God that actually is more powerful, more omnipotent, and more caring than any other God that they'd ever heard of. Paul introduced them to the good news of Jesus and suddenly they learned that the God of gods, the the King of kings, the Lord of lords, cares for them, knew them, loved them, and put himself in harm's way just for them. And their minds were, I mean, their minds were blown. Their minds are blown. They have this dramatic conversion experience together, and in their community together, they watch as miracles happen right before their very eyes. It's an amazing season in the life of this region in Galatia. But before long, Paul 
felt called and inspired to move on and to go share this experience in other places, to go plant churches in other cities. And then the people in Galatia who had become believers, they were left on their own trying to figure out this new faith without the guidance of anybody that had any experience. And in their confusion, in their wondering what to do, they reverted to some of their old religious habits. They went back to some of their old narratives. Now, they had the best of intentions. They wanted so badly to do things right, and they were trying to relate to this God that that they'd only recently learned about. But the only way that they knew how to relate to a God was by trying to figure out, what are this God's rules? How do you keep this God happy? How do you stay on the safe side? How do you go above and beyond and make sure that you do every single thing, dot every single I and cross every single T to make sure that you don't make this God angry? They tried to adapt their old narrative, the way they understood about how to be religious, and they tried to adapt that to their new faith. And that's where they got in trouble. Because somewhere along the way, They picked up the idea that since the God they were now worshiping was the God of the Jews, that they needed to start living like Jews. They picked up the idea that they should adopt Jewish laws, and so suddenly, even though they weren't Jewish, they started celebrating Jewish feasts. They start observing Jewish holidays and the Jewish calendar. They start practicing Jewish rituals. And they must have looked ridiculous in their community trying to figure it all out. None of these people were likely Israelites. In fact, it's possible the only Israelite they'd ever met was Paul, who was there for just a few months and then walked away. But here they were, and they're celebrating all these dates from Israelite history. It'd be like you marking, you know, marking holidays that are observed in Sweden or something like that. Their neighbors were probably starting to wonder. But when Paul heard about it, when word got to Paul, wherever he was traveling at that point, and he heard about the struggles and the decisions and the challenges and the ordeal that the Galatian church was going through, Paul was more than a little bit surprised. He was extremely disappointed because of a bigger issue that was at stake. You see, in Paul's eyes, in Paul's mind, and in his reasoning, this was about the difference between being saved by grace and being saved by human effort. You see, Paul was a trained expert in Jewish law and tradition. Before he met Jesus, Paul was a scholar and a prominent leader in the Jewish community. He knew full well how much attention to detail was required if someone wanted to live their entire life according to the Jewish law. In fact, he understood the truth that nobody had ever been able to do it perfectly. Nobody had ever lived up to the standard of the law that was handed down from Moses. He knew that that's why Jesus established a new covenant based on grace instead of rigid rule-keeping. There was a reason that when Paul came to Galatia in the first place and taught them about Jesus, he didn't say anything about obeying Jewish law when he taught them. And the reason was because Jewish law wasn't necessary for their faith because they weren't Jewish. And the same is true for our community here. 
Even though Paul was Jewish and an expert in Judaism, if he came and stood on this stage and spoke at Heritage as a guest speaker, Paul would not preach about keeping religious rules. He would preach about responding to the resurrection. Paul wouldn't focus on the boundaries of Christianity. He wouldn't talk about who's in and who's out. He would talk about the limitless love of Jesus and how we can learn to imitate that. We know this because that's exactly what he said when he wrote to the church in Galatia. This is the approach that he took when he instructed these Galatian Christians in the midst of all of their confusion. Now, for the first part of this letter, because of all the mess that they'd gotten themselves into, he spends a few chapters making his case for why the burden of following Jewish law was unnecessary for them. But then in chapter 5 of Galatians, Paul casts this vision for what the Christian life should look like. And for Paul... It's all about a life that's motivated and inspired by God's Spirit. Here's how he describes it, beginning in chapter 5. I know I said chapter 6, but we're going to start at the end of chapter 5, beginning in verse 22. Paul says this. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Don't miss that list. This is one of the most powerful and profound verses in all of Scripture. And Paul wraps that couple of verses up by saying, there is no law against things like this. This is Paul's description of what faithfulness to Christ looks like. He says, if we're following God's lead correctly then the results that we will notice in our lives include increased love and greater joy and deeper peace. And he goes on with this list that we will experience an, a welling up of patience, that we will feel ourselves acting more kind and better and, and more faithful and more gentle and more self-controlled. These are some of the marks of someone whose vertical relationship is healthy and growing. And as Paul points out, these are not the kinds of behaviors that have to be regulated. You don't have to put a law, you don't have to make a law to put a lid on love, right? Like nobody's looking to try to regulate how much love goes around. There's no need to put limits on kindness. If you're pursuing these kinds of qualities with your life, then regulations and laws are unnecessary for you. And Paul says that's what Christians do. That's who Christians are. He goes on in verse 24. He says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the self with its passions and its desires. And then he says, if we live by the Spirit, let's follow the Spirit. And Paul's making this definitive statement, this clear statement that said Christians... By, by our very spiritual nature, Christians don't need a law to guide us any longer because we have the Spirit to serve as our guide. But then I want you to notice the logical 
turn that he makes next. He's been talking about following the Spirit, talking about how to embrace God's new covenant, talking about how to live into and respond to this vertical relationship. But then in the very next breath, in the very next moment in this conversation, he shifts to talking about the relationships that we share with the people around us. He says in chapter 5, verse 26, he says, let's not become arrogant and let's not make each other angry and let's not be jealous of each other. Now that's solid advice in any human community, isn't it? I mean, that would work well on any football team or any work, work group. That would work well in any human group of people. But he's talking about the logical results of a life that's led by God's Spirit. Paul would say, if God is really transforming us, if God is actually changing us internally to make us more joyful, more loving, and more peaceful, then it's highly unlikely that we'll start be acting arrogant with each other. It's highly unlikely that we will provoke anger in one another. It's highly unlikely that we would be jealous of one another. But if by chance we did, if something happened in our fellowship with the Spirit, if something happened in our discipleship, if our incomplete transformation caused us to slip up and act contrary to the fruits of the Spirit, well, Paul's got a prescription for getting us back on track. And surprise, surprise, it involves our horizontal relationships. Take a look with me at Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. This is the very next verse, and I want you to remember that the chapters and verse numbers were inserted for convenience by scholars a long time after Paul wrote this. Paul didn't include chapters, didn't include verses in his letter. So this next sentence is just a continuation of the same train of thought that he had going. He says, brothers and sisters, all right, now what's that tell you? It tells you he's talking not only collectively to a group of people, but he's talking to people who have decided to be a part of the family. He's talking to people who have made a decision to be followers of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, he says, if a person is caught doing something wrong, if a person is caught, your translation may say caught in a sin, you who are spiritual, all right, now, hold on there for a second. Because it would be easy to just read over those words. It would be easy to just skim over that designation, you who are spiritual. It would be easy to skip over that and forget that Paul just described and defined for us what it means to be spiritual. A person who is spiritual is somebody who is growing in patience, and kindness and self-control and love and peace he says if someone if a person is caught doing something wrong you who are growing you who are making progress on the spiritual journey you who are walking with Jesus you who are spiritual should restore someone like this with a spirit of gentleness now, gentleness was one of those fruits of the Spirit we just read about. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. 
He says, you should restore somebody who finds themselves falling away, finds themselves caught in a sin, finds themselves doing something wrong. You should restore them, but you should do it with a spirit of gentleness and watch out for yourselves so that you won't be tempted too. Now, if you break down this sentence, what Paul's saying is, if one of your fellow disciples stops acting like a disciple, then it's your responsibility as a disciple to come to your fellow disciples' rescue. Did you get all that? If one of your fellow disciples has a moment when they stop looking like a disciple, because it's clear that their love, joy, peace, and patience, and all those things are suddenly on the decline, if one of your fellow disciples stops acting like a disciple, it's your responsibility to be there. But don't let yourself slip out of disciple mode in the process. Don't go into this process and think that this is an opportunity for a no-holds-barred approach to just, just, just do anything and everything that you feel like doing, anything and everything you feel like saying to get them to change their mind. I saw a video online recently that I wanted really badly to show you for this series, and then I, I reached out to the owner of the video, and they wanted a $700 licensing fee for me to show it to you, so I said, no, I'll just describe it. It's a video of a herd of 10 elephants that are crossing a river that's flowing pretty rapidly, and the crossing was no trouble at all for the older, taller elephants, but there's this one juvenile elephant, this little baby, that gets halfway across and gets swept away by the water and starts getting pushed downstream by this rushing river. And so this elephant's mother calmly, I want you to hear it, calmly starts following it downstream and caught up with it and stopped her baby from continuing down the river. But the flow of the water was moving so fast and the footing underneath was so slippery and the water was deep enough that this younger elephant still wasn't able to make any progress going back upstream to the one place where there was a shallow bank where they could get up out of the river. And that's when you notice in the background of this video that there's this one big bull elephant the largest one in the whole herd. And even though he had already successfully crossed the river and ascended the steep river bank, he turns back and he climbs back down into the water where he slowly, calmly, gently approaches and uses his massive body to create a wall that slows the flow of water that's hitting this little youngster. And together, the cow and the bull use their trunks to pull this little one to safety. And it's this compelling moment to watch because both of these adult elephants who could have easily crushed this baby, both of these adults, adult elephants who were large enough that they could have moved at will through this river, they were wise enough not to rush or race to help because they knew that if they hurried, their bodies would have likely pushed a wall of water that would have rolled this baby over on its back and made the problem even worse. But instead, they were peaceful about it. They showed up and they were self-controlled. They were gentle. Because they knew what to do, the baby was saved. Paul says, if one of the members of your herd starts to lose their footing, 
If one of the members of your group starts to get dragged under, then those of you who know what to do, those of you who are already growing and maturing in the Spirit should follow the Spirit as you respond to help. You should rescue and restore your fellow disciple. But in the process, in the process, don't be tempted to be angry. Don't be tempted to be conceited. Don't be tempted to be resentful. Don't condemn the one who fell. Don't think of yourself as so much more capable. Don't think of yourself as someone who's such a better follower, more faithful follower of God. Paul says, do it with gentleness. Do it gently. You make sure that you follow the Spirit as you guide them back to the path that they were on. And then in the next verse, Paul makes a provocative statement about the entirety of what it means to be a Christian. You could highlight this one in your Bible. It's chapter 6, verse 2, and Paul says, Carry each other's burdens, and so you will fulfill the law of Christ. Now, this gets to the heart of what the Galatians were really concerned about because they wanted to know, what are the expectations? What's required of me in this new faith that I have adopted? They wanted to be clear on the rules for being a Christian, but they mistakenly assumed that the rules would be the same rules as those that the Jews had tried for so long to follow. The Galatians assumed that religion had to be complicated, that religion had to be legalistic. And what they hadn't learned yet, what they hadn't come to understand yet was that Jesus had fulfilled the old law and instituted a new one for his followers. John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, Jesus told his closest disciples, he said, I give you a new commandment. Love one another. Love each other, Jesus said. Just as I have loved you, so you also must love each other. And then verse 35, this is how everyone is going to know. This is how everyone will know that you're my disciples when you love each other. This is what Jesus is leading us to do. And he's very clear that this love, this shared compassion, this interest in one another's lives, this desire to be helpful, to serve, to be a part of walking together with each other on the spiritual journey, this interest in putting others' needs ahead of our own, he's very clear, he says, that is going to be a defining, identifying characteristic. Jesus is telling them, you're not going to be recognized as Christians because of your ritual. You're not going to be recognized as Christians because of your attendance. You're not going to be recognized as Christians because of your impressive prayers or your Bible knowledge. You're not going to be recognized as Christians because of any outward appearance of how you adorn yourself or how you present yourself. Jesus told his disciples, the way that we love each other is going to be the litmus test for whether we are actually students of Jesus Christ. It's a new rule a new law 
And it's a commandment that eclipses all of the other commandments for the people of God. But what's it mean for you? What does it mean for you and me? I, I, don't, I, I don't know anybody around here who's tempted to try to act Jewish, tempted to try to live into those old customs and regulations and laws. What does it mean for you to live a life that's directed by the Spirit? What does it mean for you to live a life that's in obedience to our new law from Jesus, our new command from Jesus? I think Paul's trying to tell us this means that your obedience to God, your vertical relationship and your connection, the strength of your relationship with God depends on you showing up and being involved in the lives of other disciples. It depends on you being interested and available and responsive to the needs of other people on the spiritual journey with you. Paul might say it this way, in order to fulfill God's law, be there to help the ones who fall. If you want to do what Jesus has called us to do, you can't go it alone. You can't go it alone. Because if you try to do it by yourself, if you try to make this journey solo, you're going to miss out on the parts of the journey that God has placed you there to be a part of. You're going to miss out on the moments when somebody needed help that you could provide because of your experience, because of your faith, because of your background. You're going to miss out on the moments that God needed you there. If you try to go this journey on your own, you're going to miss out on the times when God needed you to show up, but maybe even more scary, if you try to go this journey alone, there's going to be moments when you need help and there's nobody there that has been walking with you. you got to do this in community. And Paul is telling us that the fulfillment of Christ's law, the fulfillment of the rules for faith as a Christian happen when we bear one another's burdens, that when we show up and we carry one another's burdens and we gently restore and revive and refresh and encourage one another, we encapsulate the love of God and the love of neighbor that Jesus said were the very most important commandments. What does this mean for you? It means that you've got an opportunity. You've got an invitation you have a spiritual instruction and a commission and you have a spiritual obligation to dive deeper and to push further into the community of people who are following Jesus. It means we got to do it together. And the reality is that this is only possible. It's only available to us because Jesus bore our burden first. I mean, we're here. We're here not trying to earn 
the love of God. We're here not trying to satisfy the requirements of God. We're here not trying to garner God's favor. We're here because we already have it. We're here because Jesus has already satisfied the requirements. We're here because Jesus has already carried the burden. We're here because we were absolutely helpless to do anything on our own and Jesus did it in our place. And we are here in response. We live our lives in response. And so as we begin to wrap up this morning, you, you may know we celebrate a little memorial meal here every week. We call it the Lord's Supper. It's a little piece of cracker and a little bitty cup of juice. In fact, we have some in the back of the room, and if you didn't grab one on your way in, all you got to do is raise a hand, and I've got ushers who are ready to bring it to you in your seat. Don't even have to get up. But we, we observe this little meal to remind ourselves that the work of salvation has already been done and that we are living in an era of response. We are living in an age of responding to the goodness and the love and the generosity and the sacrifice and the grace and the mercy of God. We are living as people who have received blessing upon blessing. And lest we forget, we remind each other every week of the love that was poured out for us.